Please uh, turn in your scripture to the book of Job. We'll be starting reading at Job chapter 40, uh, verse uh, 6, and we will read through uh, chapter 41. Uh, This is, remember, the Lord uh, still uh, speaking uh, to Job. The Lord began to speak at the beginning of chapter uh, 38 and had challenged Job as one who was darkening his counsel with words without knowledge. And so for uh, two chapters, the Lord uh, overwhelmed Job with question after question about the heavens and the earth and about uh, the creatures of his hand. And at the end of that, we'd read at the beginning of chapter 40, uh, Job uh, putting his hand uh, over his mouth and committing not to speak again, uh, but the Lord wasn't the Lord wasn't done. Um, even with two chapters of overwhelming questions that Job could only answer, no, 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 no. Um, but the Lord still had had more for Job and more for us as well. And so this is the word of the Lord, Job chapter forty, uh, beginning at verse six. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. That means gird up your loins. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, clothe yourself with glory and splendor, pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who's proud and abase him. Look on everyone who's proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together, bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade, the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose? Or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He's laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. 
Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face around his teeth is terror? His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They're joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him, and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for Uh, Your word, Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you've not left us to ourselves to understand the scripture or to see your glory in it or how it points us to the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit who reads these pages and who reads these verses with us that we might understand them. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that you would speak to us and that we'd be drawn closer to you, that we'd see more of your glory, that in the week to come, uh, we would live uh, what we believe. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 In 2007, the crew of a New Zealand fishing boat hooked a Patagonian toothfish in the deep waters off Antarctica when they realized that something bigger was also trying to swallow it. Two hours later, they hauled up one of the most mysterious and frightening predators of the deep, a colossal squid, about 39 feet long. That is the length of a shipping container. Um, Weighing nearly 1,000 pounds, we're told, with eyes as big as plates, and 25 razor-sharp hooks on the end of its tentacles. And if you made calamari rings uh, from its tentacles, 
they would have been the size of tractor tires. Try to eat one of those. <laughs> that wouldn't work very well. They were surprised. Um, I don't like barking dogs, um, truth be told. Others I know have trouble not shaking in their boots at the sight of a small spider uh, or an earwig. Um, but maybe you're tougher, right? Uh, maybe you're like Job. Listen to what the Lord says to Job as these verses open. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. Again, that's that Hebrew uh, idiom, uh, gird up your loins for action. This is, this is going to be uh, difficult. This is going to be challenging. This is, uh, it's time to wrestle. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? We have seen that at the end of the book of Job, that as the Lord appears out of the whirlwind, out of the storm, uh, and speaks to Job, instead of the Lord uh, answering all of Job's questions that he had through his suffering, we saw, first of all, that the Lord challenged Job as one who was speaking words without knowledge, that it's true he was not suffering because he was a sinner or because he was sinful, but in his suffering, he has indeed sinned. He's spoken too much, and he has, he has, as it were, challenged God and challenged God's goodness and his justice. And so the Lord humbled him, and so Job covered his mouth. But here, uh, the Lord moves on to challenge Job also specifically with the fact that as we have heard Job speak through all these chapters, even though we know that he is a, he is a righteous man, that's what God said. He shuns evil. That's what, that's what God said. Uh, he is a righteous man. He belongs to the Lord. He loves the Lord. He serves the Lord. He, he fears the Lord. But even so, along the way, in his suffering, he has, in fact, put God in the wrong. So the Lord starts by saying, if I am unjust, can you do better? Do you have power? The Lord will charge Job in this chapter. Do you have power to save? You know, Job has seen something of God's surpassing glory and majesty, but he also needs to see the depth of his weakness and his sin. And that's the thing. He has suggested to God that somehow... He knows better than God, and he has, a better, he has a better way. Lord, he had said to, Job had said to the Lord, if you would just come, if you would just give me opportunity uh, to, to give you my case, Job's thinking, no doubt I can show you that this is wrong. And now God is calling him to account. It says, Derek Thomas, whenever we complain at what is happening to us in our lives, we're doing the same as Job suggesting that we could run things better than Almighty God. It is worth a moment's reflection. How would we deal with those who treat us badly if we only had the power? The history of the world is a catalog of man's inhumanity and brutality when given positions of authority and power. God has the power so to manipulate events that even the evil things turn out for our good. Paul insists, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Job can never hope to attain to this level. Job is not only impotent, he is also ignorant. Behind these events of Job lie the schemes of Satan. We know that. 
a malevolence of which Job seems totally unaware, God is actually ordering, ordering all of what Satan is doing in order to bring good into Job's life. And here's the thing. If Job is great, surely he can contend with two of God's creatures. Job, after all, is a man. Behemoth and Leviathan are but beasts, creatures less than man. So Job, if you believe you can save yourself and justify yourself before me, before God, surely you can do so before two of God's lesser creatures. So Job 40, 15. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you, he eats grass like an ox, verse 19. He is the first of the works of God. And then chapter 41, verse 1, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a core? First thing we want to think about tonight is who are these creatures? The footnote in my ESV uh, for both words, behemoth and Leviathan says, a large animal, exact identity, unknown. It's probably what it says in, in your Bible as well. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century equated equated behemoth with an elephant and Leviathan with a whale. Samuel Bocardus in 1663 identified behemoth with the hippopotamus and Leviathan with the crocodile. And that has become really the consensus view of of many. But there really are only three possibilities uh, as to who these creatures are. Some say that when we think here about behemoth and Leviathan, that these are figurative, that these are symbolic creatures, that they are actually symbols of evil. And so think of Satan, for instance, being referred to in the New Testament in the book of Revelation uh, as the great uh, dragon. Here in verse 15, though, we do find the Lord saying, Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. So that seems to indicate that behemoth with Job is simply a fellow creature. And then when it comes to Leviathan, over in uh, Psalm 104, uh, we hear of Leviathan again, and this is what we read in Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works, and wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here's the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, Living things, both small and great, there go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. And so in the, in the Psalms, Leviathan is simply another creature of God's hands that he has uh, placed in the sea. And the other thing, of course, is that as we've been reading along here in Job, all these creatures that God has been describing to Job thus far are simply creatures he has created and describe for us. So that's the first uh, view, that these are figurative symbolic creatures, but I don't think the scripture uh, lends support to that. The second view, of course, is that these are animals uh, we're, we're familiar with today. Uh, that, for instance, behemoth is a hippopotamus. Uh, Leviathan is uh, some, kind of, some kind of crocodile. Uh, listen to uh, one writer. The loins of a hippopotamus are not individually visible, and neither are the muscles Behemoth, we're told, makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The cedar tree is known for its size and its hard wood, some branches being 10 to 20 meters long. The tail should be strong and long. The tail of the hippopotamus is short and thick, about 30 to 50 centimeters long. Not stiff, uh, it hangs down. 
and is wiggled by the hippopotamus. The behemoth is pictured here in Job as, as invincible, uh, and, uh, and so is the Leviathan. And yet Egyptians, we know, hunted the hippopotamus and the crocodile, and they certainly did not pierce, uh, or they certainly did pierce them through. The historian Herodotus wrote this, the people from the area of Elephantine, in contrast, do eat crocodiles and do not at all consider them to be sacred. Crocodiles are frequently hunted and in many ways. Of no crocodile could we say, as chapter 41.21 says, his breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Crocodiles do not, as verse 25 says, Crocodiles do not raise themselves up. The usual identification of Leviathan as a crocodile leads to many problems. The Egyptians could hunt, capture, tame them. And just as for behemoth, it can be said of Leviathan that the present animal kingdom does not contain clear examples of animals that satisfy this description. So that's another view, that these are animals that, that we are familiar with today, but nothing seems to fit. Of course, the other view is that uh, these must be creatures that we have no experience of today. That is, creatures that are now extinct. That is, these animals are described in such a way uh, that they are more like those great creatures we find hinted at in the fossil record, created, as Genesis 1 tells us, on day 6 with man, as all creatures were created uh, land creatures that day. So that's the other possibility. So figurative, animals we know that doesn't seem to fit, or animals we have no experience of today. Well, what do we learn of the behemoth? Well, verse 15 says, he eats grass like an ox. His body is all power and muscle. Verse 18, his bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He lies peacefully along the riverbank in verses 21 and 22. Again, he is invincible. Verse 24, can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Obviously, the Lord is saying, no, you can't do that. He's invincible. In fact, it's only the Lord that could take him on. Verse 19, he's the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. That is, only God can deal with the behemoth. What do we learn of the Leviathan? Well, like behemoth, this is one of God's creatures. Note the similarity of verse 24 of chapter 40 and 41, verse 2. 40, 24 says of behemoth, can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? 41, 2 says of Leviathan, can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Leviathan, verses 1 and 2, uh, you can't catch him. Uh, he won't submit to you, verses 3 and 4. Uh, he's not safe or manageable, verses 5 and 6 and 13. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? He's impenetrable, verse 7. Can you fill his skin with harpoons? No, you can't. Verse 15, his back is made of rows of shields. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. He is mighty. Verse 12, I will not keep silence concerning his limbs, says the Lord, or his mighty strength, or his goodly frame. Verse 22, in his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. He breathes smoke and fire in verses 18 through 21. Uh, clearly, this is not a crocodile. He strikes fear into the heart of men. Verse 25, when he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. 
at the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it doesn't avail. Nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He dwells, verse 31, in the deep, and there is none like him on the earth, verse 33. On earth there's not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that's high. He's king over all the sons of pride. Now, at the end of the day, of course, the point is this. Whoever these creatures are, they are powerful, but God, of course, is mightier than they. They are, after all, his creatures. The devil, uh, Martin Luther said, um, is God's devil. So even when we think of the worst Uh, enemies of the Christian. Here we're thinking about actual creatures, but even if we were to think about, well, Satan himself, as we saw Satan himself in Job 1 and 2. You know what Martin Luther meant, that uh, the devil is God's devil, meaning the devil can't do anything without the sovereign permission of God. So God, even though they're powerful, the God is mighty and and they're under his control, but they are, yet, they are yet creatures. But Job is no match for them. Not Job. If anyone's going to approach these creatures that I've made, God says, it's, it's going to be me, not you, Job. No man would dare stand against them. So we have the creatures Which leads to our second point tonight. Who is Job? Well, chapter 41, verse 8. The Lord, in the midst of describing these two creatures, speaks to Job. And this is what he says. Lay your hands on him, Leviathan. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He's laid low even at the sight of him. That is Leviathan. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. You would not dare to approach these two creatures, whoever they are, that the Lord has described. And then the Lord says this, Who then is he who can stand before me? That is, stand and as it were, like Job was asking for, stand and in one sense do battle. <laughs> you know, Lord, let me stand in your presence and let me, let me give you all the evidence because of what you're doing is not, not right or that there's a better way. If you can't stand before Leviathan, then no one would dare. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who's first given to me that I should repay him? Do I owe you something, Job? Am I in your debt? Whatever's under the whole heaven, you see, is mine. The hope of a man, says the Lord, is false. We're laid low even at the sight of Leviathan. No one dare stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? None so fierce dare challenge Leviathan. Who can stand before the Lord? This is a uh, a common theme, really, in the Scripture. It's a common theme, for instance, in the Psalms. Psalm 76, verse uh, 4 says this, Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. 
At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is aroused? From the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. In the prophet Nahum, chapter 1, we read this. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The book of Revelation, we read this in Revelation 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can Stand. But Job, in fact, has sought, you see, he sought to do this here in the book of Job. That's why God challenges him in that, those opening verses, dress for action like a man. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? Now, whatever else... Uh, Job has said, however else Job has indeed, as we've seen, expressed faith and hope in God, I know that my Redeemer lives. And though I'm going through this trial, I will come out as gold. Uh, I need an advocate. I need a, a mediator. We've heard all that. And, and Job is a man of faith. Uh, we've also heard the divine commentary on the man Job. He's righteous, shuns evil, and fears God. But despite all of that, the fact that he is righteous, he does belong to God, he is still a sinner just like you and I. And in particular, in response to his trials and suffering, while enduring by faith, he has sought to put God in the wrong. He has sought to condemn God and declared himself right in opposition to God. This is important. The book of Job helps us to understand that there is a difference between being the righteous of God, which all believers are, and being self-righteous before God. There is a difference between being the righteous of God and being self-righteous before God. It's the difference uh, between the righteous, the Bible says, the righteous and devout Simeon. That's what he's called in the New Testament. Simeon was a man righteous and devout who greeted uh, the baby Jesus uh, at the temple with words of praise. It's the difference between Simeon and the self-righteous, full of dead men's bones, Jesus said, Pharisees who cursed Jesus and plotted to kill him. God's people are the righteous of the Lord, righteous through faith. It is, as Luther said, an alien righteousness from outside of us. That is, we receive that righteousness uh, that is not ours, 
belongs to Christ, but we receive his righteousness by faith in Christ alone. He takes our sin and, and we receive his righteousness. So we become the righteous of God. It's not ours. <laughs> it belongs to Jesus, but he's given it to us by faith. Job, the righteous one, has been guilty of self-righteousness, and the Lord is graciously calling him to account. Even as Jesus would confront uh, the Pharisees and all would-be Pharisees today. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 16, 13? He said this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Remember that teaching of Jesus? And then this, the Pharisees, they were listening, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, <laughs> heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. See, they were convicted. They heard Jesus speak, and he's just saying, listen, no one can serve two masters, and they were mad. You can't, have, you can't, can't serve both God and money, and, and these folks, they got mad because Jesus says their heart was in their cash. They loved money, and they hated Jesus. And Jesus says, well, you're always seeking to justify yourselves before others. Only one master, Jesus says. Here's the thing for Job. If I am right in this matter, Job would have said to himself, God must be wrong. If I am great, God must be small. But if God is both right and great, that means I am both small and in the wrong. And this, friends, is what Job is learning. Our problem is not that we are finite. That is, it's not that our problem is not that we're creatures. God will always be the creator. We will always be creatures, even in the new heavens and the new earth. And he alone will always be the only one worthy of worship of his finite creatures. Our problem is that we are in the wrong, but we speak to God as if he was somehow in the wrong. This is God's challenge to Job and his challenge to us. Particularly here, the Lord would remind Job and us of two things, of the Lord's majesty and his justice. See how he does that in verse 10? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, he says to Job. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Look on everyone who's proud and abase him. Look on everyone who's proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. In other words, the Lord is saying to Job, act as the judge uh, of all the earth. And then the Lord says in verse 14, then if you can do that, if you can serve as the judge of all men, then... The Lord says, verse 14, Will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you? In other words, he says, if you can serve as God, then I'll acknowledge, isn't that amazing? The Lord said to Job, then I'll acknowledge to you, Job, that you can also save yourself. If you can serve as the judge of the universe, well, then you'd be able to save yourself too. If you're the king, if you're the Lord, if you're the judge, 
You have hope, the Lord says, to save yourself. But friends, this is our problem. <laughs> See, this is the problem. We think and act and live as if we were our own saviors. Remember, the Lord warned his people of this way back in Deuteronomy, and it serves well for us today, too. Remember when you know, the Lord says, I'm going to bring you into this land. You're going to be so blessed. You're going you know, to build houses. You're going to have these vineyards. You're going to have all these blessings. But the Lord says, when you get into that land, don't ever say to yourself that it was my own right hand that brought this to be. Don't ever come to that place in your walk with me, the Lord says to the Israelites back then. He'd say it to us too. Don't ever come to that place in your walk with the Lord where you are experiencing just, you know, blessing after blessing after blessing and you, and you, uh, you know, and you stand up a little taller and prouder and say, well, of course I'm experiencing all these blessings because I've done it. Yeah. No. No, you haven't. It, it's of the Lord. You see, the Lord, you can't save yourself. You haven't done it yourself. Only the Lord, only the Lord. All our blessings come by way of the Lord and his faithful covenant mercies to us. All good things, the Bible says, come from him. He's promised to be our God. We're to be his people. In Christ, all the promises are yes and amen. We're not saved by our own right hand, but by the life and obedience and death and resurrection of the Son of God who's seated at the right hand of the Father. No, Job cannot save himself. No, Job is not the judge of the world. And no, God is not wrong. And no, Job is not right. Who, the Lord says, can stand before behemoth and Leviathan? No one. No one. Much more so. Much more so, the Lord says to Job. Who can stand and then argue and give a defense before the holy God? claiming that he is in the wrong and that we are in the right. Can you do that, Job? Can I do that, Peter? Can you do that, friends? We wouldn't be spoiling the story to answer no. No one can stand. All our sin, the Bible says, is laid bare before the one with whom we have to do. But of course, praise the Lord, we know that Christ has come. We need not stand alone before the holy, majestic God. We have an advocate. We have a mediator. We have a redeemer. We have a savior who is Christ the Lord. But we all, like Job, have to be brought to that conviction at some point or other that before the holy God, no one can stand. And that's where Job is being led, even as Christians are led, and even as the Apostle Paul describes it for us in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him, that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Is that where Job will be led? Um, Well, that's where the last chapter uh, of the book of Job will take us. How does Job respond to God's challenge? Is he going to challenge God back? Or will he be humbled before the Lord? Well, that's what we'll find out uh, next time. Let's pray uh, together. Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, these uh, marvelous descriptions we have in the scripture of your glorious creation. And Lord, we find at the end of the book of Job, Lord, not what we would expect. Lord, we know that this is a man who has suffered greatly. A man who has had friends come that were not truly his friends to help. We have heard, Lord, a a true friend, Elihu, come to him and point him in the right direction to remind him of the truth that you are good and you are just and you are holy. And now, Lord, as you have uh, come to speak to him, as you reveal yourself to him, Lord, even then, none of Job's questions about his suffering will be answered. And yet, Lord, we do find you answering all his questions by revealing the glory of who you are to him and to us. And so, oh, Lord, we pray that we too would ponder these these things, your glorious creation, our weakness, and also our sin. Lord, that in our sin, we, we do challenge you. We put you in the wrong, and we want to be in the right in our sinful pride. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that you would help us to be humbled, as Job will be humbled, before you, the holy God, that before your presence, no one can stand, and that that is why. You have sent the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.